Amen. Thank God. Yeah, it's all good. Yeah. Praise God. Well, God has been good. He is always faithful. And I want to thank you for your generous support and volunteering and serving so beautifully. We have much to celebrate the graciousness of our God who is faithful. Amen? All right, now sit back down. That's good. Thank you so much. We've been uh, talking about the REACH campaign, our major capital campaign, the last uh, several weeks. We've learned about the 414 window. Everyone know what the 414 window is? The age of people who make a meaningful decision for Jesus in our culture, 85% of people do so between the ages of 4 and 14. We're going to refocus our attention on these kids. Last week we talked about new church development. Planting new churches is the most strategic thing that we can do in the United States right now to, uh, to see a move of God take place. And so we want to engage that process. Today I want to talk about giving your best, giving your best to God. Uh, generally speaking, that's our goal, isn't it? To give our best, to fulfill the potential that God has given each one of us. And specifically, as we think about the campaign, uh, which we'll receive pledges for next week, uh, we want to give our best. We want to find God's best plan for our lives and engage that. So we've taken as our text today from 2 Timothy chapter 2. This is the Apostle Paul, the great apostle, teaching his young protege, Timothy, some important things about leadership and about worldview. And so I'm going to read the first seven verses, 2 Timothy chapter 2 today. And there are three analogies that the apostle makes, that of a soldier, and then an athlete, and then a farmer. And they become metaphors for us as we understand how to give God our best. So as you find your way there in your scripture, uh, that's great. If you don't have your Bible, we'll project the words on the screen for you. And as our custom here to stand to hear God's word, so I'll invite you to do so as you're able. Thanks so much. 2 Timothy chapter 2. The Apostle says to Timothy, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. And the hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all of this. Now may God give us that insight, we pray. You may be seated. Thanks so much. You know, the greatest tragedy in life, greatest tragedy in life is not dying. A greater tragedy in life is failing to meet your potential. It is falling short of God's best plan for your life. It's actually a poor stewardship of your life, which finds you having wasted portions of your life. And that's really the greatest and the saddest trage tragedy that can happen in life. And today we want to talk about being your best. Remember the army posters that say, be all you can be? And that's what God asks us to do, to be all that we can be. Let me tell you a story about Admiral Hyman Rickover, he was the father of America's naval nuclear navy. He was a genius, a brilliant man and leader, and was responsible for the nuclear sub, nuclear navy portion of our military. And on one occasion, he was interviewing young recruits, young cadets who had just graduated from the Naval Academy. And he had a young man in his office interviewing him for a submarine duty. And this young man subsequently wrote 
a, a story, I wrote an account of this meeting with Admiral Rickover, and I want to share that with you. What happened uh, that day, a young man wrote later, that the Admiral just let me talk for about two hours. So I talked about anything that I wanted to talk about. I was really just trying to show off all of my intelligence. And then the Admiral began to ask a series of questions, which caused me to realize that I knew nothing about what I'd been talking about. And it was very humbling, he said. And then he wrote that just before the two-hour conversation ended, Admiral Rickover asked me, he wrote, a very poignant question. It was this. When you were in school and in all your previous life up to this date, did you always do your best? And the young man said, I started to say yes, then I realized that wouldn't be truthful. No, I said, I didn't. I was honest. No, I didn't do my best all the time. And then he said, Admiral Rickover looked at me with piercing eyes and then said, why not? And then he just sat back in his chair and waited for me. The young man said that that question began to burn in his heart, began to become literally the turning point in his life. And that man who was that young cadet later became the 39th president of the United States. His name is Jimmy Carter. And when Jimmy Carter wrote his autobiography, it was called Why Not the Best? Why Not the Best? Stemming from that particular event. Now, he reports that that question still haunts him. And the question comes up in his life and his mind, am I truly doing my best? Good question, isn't it? Compelling question. Am I doing my best? Well, uh, today we have these three metaphors, these analogies of a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. And we can learn about how to do our best, give our best to God through the lives of these particular kinds of people. And if you have your outline handy, you can see we're going to talk first about the soldier. And the first thing a soldier must do is the soldier must define what they'll die for. I must define what I die for. Now, that may sound like a strange place to start when giving your best to God, but here's the truth. Until you know what you're willing to die for, you're not willing to live. To say it another way, you're not re ready to live until you know what you would die for. To say it another way, you're not ready to love until you know who you're ready to die for. Soldiers know that there are some things worth dying for. They know freedom's worth dying for. Soldiers know that that family's worth dying for. Soldiers also know that faith is worth fighting for and dying for. Jesus said it this way, John 15, 13, the greatest love is shown when a person lays down his life for his friends. Soldiers get that. Jesus actually did that for us. And in so doing, he reminds us that the, you measure love not by what people tell you, not what, by people what they say, not what your boyfriend tells you, you measure love by the willingness to sacrifice. And the greater the sacrifice, then the greater level of love. And Jesus went all out for us. He must love us a lot. So I must define what I'll die for. And then the second thing a soldier teaches us on your outline there is I must sacrifice my comfort. You need the word comfort. And soldiers do this all the time. They sacrifice their comfort. Their, their free schedule is sacrificed. Their wealth. I mean, nobody gets wealthy becoming a soldier. And we know that this is generally true, don't we? That you don't become great without sacrificing. You don't become great by doing what's easy. You don't become great by doing what's comfortable. You don't become great by doing what's convenient. You become great by committing 
yourself to something greater than yourself and then being willing to sacrifice for that thing. That's how greatness emerges. The greater the sacrifice in life, the greater your life and influence will be. The Bible says this in our text, endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Now, I wonder if you have hardships in your life because of Jesus. What hardships are you suffering right now because of your faith in Christ? I wonder. Some of you are. Perhaps all of us are. Some of us are suffering because we're being criticized for our faith or even ostracized socially for our faith. Perhaps some of us are being criticized and suffer hardship because we've chosen to do the right thing rather than the wrong thing. Have you discovered in life already that it's always easier to do the wrong thing than it is the right thing? <laughs> the right thing is very rarely the easy thing to do. It's always, almost always the harder thing to do. And so hardship can come when you do the right thing. That's why it's harder to tell the truth than to tell a lie. Sometimes it's easier to tell a lie than the truth. That's why some of you are suffering hardship because you've chosen to forgive rather than hold a grudge. Some of you are suffering hardship because you've chosen to be kind to a person who has offended you or wounded you rather than to be judgmental and vindictive toward them as selfish. It's a battle to do what's right. It's not easy. And we're in that spiritual battle. Ephesians 5, chapter 5, verse 2 says, Live a life of sacrificial love, just like Christ loved us and gave himself as an offering and sacrifice for us. Now, here's the question. Do you want to be like Jesus? <laughs> do you want to sacrifice? Do you want to live a sacrificial kind of life? So challenging questions. I know that some of you are sacrificing. I know some of your stories. I am so proud and honored to be your pastor. There's so many great, great people in the life of our church. And I know some of the sacrifices that some of you are making. I know, for example, that some of you last night, you didn't tell me this today, but I know, some of you last night laid awake for some portion of the night. And the reason you laid awake is because you're concerned about someone. You're burdened for them. You're burdened for their life and circumstances. And so you spent some time praying and interceding for them last night. And so you sacrificed on their behalf. Some of you are actually spending money right now just trying to help someone along to get through that season, this difficult time. And so you're giving them a little hand up until they can get through this, this period of life. Some of you are sacrificing your privacy. I know your story. You've invited people to live in your house in order to care for their temporary needs while they sort it out. There's lots of sacrificing going around. And when you sacrifice in these ways, you are more and more like Jesus. And so good for you. And so we learn these two things uh, from a soldier about what to die for and the comfort that we turn loose of. I want to tell you the story of sacrifice. Many of you have heard this story perhaps. It comes from the life of Jim Elliott and four of his close friends who became missionaries to a tribe of people in the Amazon and Ecuador, the Amazon basin. And this uh, tribe of people had never heard the name of Jesus. There was no church there, no Bibles, no believers. They were a hostile tribe. They were, they were known for their violence. And Jim Elliott would fly over this part of Ecuador uh, along the Amazon and drop gifts. And they did this for six months, trying to win, win the friendship of this tribe. And so one day, Jim Elliott and his four close friends loaded up in a plane. They found the sandbar along the Amazon, and they landed the plane on that sandbar. And the chief of this tribe and the men of this tribe came out of the jungle that day, and as they got out of the airplane, they killed every one of them. 
every newspaper headline across America, every magazine cover the next month in America featured this story. Most people said it was a horrible thing, a tragic death. What a waste, what a waste. You, you could read this in the columns. And, and when you think about it, you wonder, you know, what a price that was paid. But that isn't the end of the story. If you've heard this story before and it's so inspirational, many of you know that Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth, and her oldest daughter, and also Rachel Saint, the sister of one of the other men who were killed, the three of these women and a, and a handful of others marched right back into that jungle, into this village, and introduced themselves as the wives, as the children, as the, as the siblings of the men that they had killed. And you can imagine the impact. And Elizabeth Elliot and the others began to talk to them about the love of God and the forgiveness that can, found, can be found in Jesus Christ. And that entire tribe of people came to Jesus. You might also be interested to know that that tribal chief, who was a leader and who had killed Jim Elliot, later had Steve Saint, who was one of the, the sons of the men killed, actually adopted him as his own son. And Steve Saint adopted this tribal chief as his own father, the very man who had killed his own dad. It's mind-boggling. That tribal chief became a devout Christian and then became a preacher and literally traveled around the world telling people about the good news of forgiveness. Now let me ask you a question. How did that man and those people come to Christ? How did that happen? Because somebody was willing to sacrifice. Somebody's willing to sacrifice. Because there are some things worth dying for. It's worth it. Now listen, I doubt if God will ever ask you to give your life for Jesus' sake. I doubt it. But the question is... Would you be willing? Are you willing to sacrifice your own comfort for the greater good of other people? Because that's what it means to be like Jesus. And there's one other thing, a third thing that we learn from a soldier. Not only what you'll die for and, and the comfort that you'll give up, but I also must eliminate distractions. You need the word distraction there. Eliminate that. As Christ's soldier, do not let yourself become entangled in the affairs of this life. Wasting time, for then you can please you cannot please your commanding officer who enlisted you in the army. So here's one thing that a soldier must have. He must have the freedom to respond. He, he must have the ability to say yes whenever the commanding officer calls. And that's the same attitude that we should have. We've got to eliminate the distractions because a, a soldier has to be present and accounted for. Can't be AWOL, can't be out there, can't be at the, at the response to an order, sorry, I can't do that right now. That's not convenient for me. Uh, I'm busy right now. Uh, you know, I've got to finish this episode of say yes to the dress, and then maybe I can do something about that. I can't fit that in right now. I'm shopping. Uh, I, can't, I, can't, I can't go right now. I'm playing my hobby, or I'm going to the ball game. And all of us have distractions. And none of those things I just mentioned are bad things. I'm just suggesting that we've got to be ready. And we can't have so much piled up in front of us and around us that we're distracted when Jesus calls. When our commander-in-chief calls us and upon us, we've got to be ready. So we must eliminate distractions as necessary. So I define what I die for. I sacrifice my comfort. I eliminate distractions. And that leads us into the second analogy, and that's the one of an athlete. Now, we're not talking about a casual athlete here. We're talking about a serious 
athlete because there is a, a different, a competitive athlete. And the Bible compares your life to a race. Many of you have read this in the Bible, I'm sure, that, that life is compared to a race. And it's not a sprint, but it's a, it's a marathon. And so God expects us to start the race, to run the race, and to finish the race. So you start, you run, and you finish. It's very important. Here's what the Bible says, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. In a race, everyone runs, but only one person wins the prize. So run your race to win. To win the contest, you must deny yourself many things that would keep you from doing your best. So there you have some perspective. So here's what the athlete teaches us. The first thing, it's this. It's on your outline. I must intend to win. I must intend to win. So important. You're not going to win in life unless you're intentional about it. You're not going to win by accident or win by some, some, some life that doesn't have effort. And if you don't have any goals, winning that way doesn't happen. It only happens if you intend to be the best you can be, if you intend to be a great person, a great character, a great soul. That only happens if you focus on that. It's the difference between being a casual Christian and a committed Christian. Let me ask you this question. Is there a difference between a, a serious golfer and a casual golfer? Is there a difference? <laughs> There's a huge difference. A serious golfer is very serious. I mean, all the nuances of the game, the complexities of the game, very important to them. Uh, hard work is engaged to try to hit that ball straight and, and to study the course and to imagine shots and shaping shots. And it, it's very serious. It's, this is why I don't play golf. I don't play golf because I don't do, well, I do very few things in life casually. So golf is not one of those things I could be casual about. Some people can play golf casually. You know, he's just going out. It's a sunny day. I love the, the weather's nice. Get to be with my buddies. Uh, get to hear the birds chirping. You know, get to eat a hot dog and, and uh, in the clubhouse. And, and, you know, if I hit the ball in the woods, that's no problem. I got some other balls I can use. And casual. Mind-boggling, but there are people who play golf that way. There's a huge difference, though, and the difference is the degree of seriousness, isn't it? It's the degree of seriousness. So here's my question. How serious are you about being what God made you to be? How serious are you about that? Are you intentional about that? Are you serious about that? I want you to look at the screen at 1 Corinthians 9.24 again. In a race, everyone runs, but only one person wins the prize. So run your race to win. Run to win. And the truth is that there are that there are people in our world and Christian people, and this is my great concern for the church in America, that we're just casual about this. We're not serious about it. We, we talk about it a lot. We, we, we sing about it a lot. We imagine what's going to happen. We, we make plans about it. We intend to do great things, but, but, there, but there's no of the doing. And so we don't, we don't run well, and we don't end up finishing well, and people don't win the race. Look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12. I'll put it on the screen. It says, run your best in the race of faith and win eternal life for yourself. For this is the life that God called you to when you professed your faith before many witnesses. 
Do you see the importance here of focusing on the reward, focusing on the finish? You got to see it out there. That's where I'm headed. That's my goal right out there. And so you run purposefully toward that goal. And the last part of that verse says, when you profess your faith before many witnesses, that's referring to, the, to your baptism. Water baptism, the sac- sacrament of water baptism is sharing your witness to the world, your faith in Christ to the world through water baptism. Everyone should be baptized in water as a witness to what God has done for you. If that's a step that you have not yet taken, you need to take it. Maybe that's the next step. So the next time we offer baptisms here, get on the list, get in the line, and get baptized because it's a great witness for Christ, and it's biblical. So I want you to do it. I want you to be serious about that. I want you to be casual in your Christianity. So first of all, I must intend to win. And then second of all, I must discipline myself. This is what we learn from, from athletics. I must discipline myself. The Bible says that anyone who competes as an athlete can't receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. In other words, you can't be a successful athlete if you just live your life by any way you feel or by some mood you're in. Or you, or you think you're going to compete outside of the rules. That's not the way it works. You can't make it up as you go. There has to be discipline. 1 Corinthians 9 again. To win the contest, you must deny yourself many things that would keep you from doing your best. It requires discipline. This summer, we're really looking forward to this summer because this summer, 2016, uh, the Olympic Games will be held in Brazil, Rio de Janeiro. It's going to be a wonderful Olympic Games. I, I just, I love the Olympic Games. Let me tell you why I love them. It's because I appreciate so much the accomplishment of these athletes. It's, it's that, and there's all kinds of other things that the Olympics represent on a global basis. But, but I, I really appreciate the effort and the discipline and the acknowledgement of that work that comes with these athletes. Now, now resist this temptation. There are going to be these young men and women. They will compete, and some of them will on that day be the best person in the world in that category in that event I just think that's really cool and so they'll, they'll climb up on a platform and someone will get gold and bronze, silver and bronze medals and they'll, they'll put a gold medal around the neck of some young man and some young woman during the Olympic Games and when they do that I, wanna, I want you to resist the temptation to think boy that guy sure is lucky boy that, boy, that girl must have gotten a lot of good breaks in her life you know, she, someone must have been bankrolling her training because, you know, she must have had, all, she must have had all, the, all that worked out for her. He must have had it easy getting there. Let me tell you what the truth is. The truth is that these athletes are the best in the world for a reason. And it's not because they were born on one side of the track. It's not because necessarily they had the best genetics, although that probably helps. But what makes them the best in the world is the discipline that they've applied to their lives. Almost without exception, all of these people have set aside important things that other people won't set aside. They set aside their social lives. They set aside sometimes their romantic lives. They set aside their peer lives. They, they give up all that stuff. They go to bed before their peers do. They wake up before their peers get up. They eat a different diet than everybody else eats. They exercise and train and work out three and four times a day, and they do this day in and day out for years so that when they stand on that platform, don't look at them and go, boy, you know, he sure was born with some muscles. Just take, take your hand and slap yourself. 
Because that boy is standing on that platform because he deserves to stand there. He's paid the price to stand there. He's earned the right to stand there. Same way with that young woman. You say, boy, she's nice and lean. And boy, she sure is a fast runner. And the reason that she's the way she is is because she has paid the price to be at that level of competition. It's a remarkable accomplishment and honorable. And we should recognize it. And that's exactly what I'm talking about. They gave their whole life for something that's meaningful to them and a meaningful goal. But put it in the context of the kingdom of God. See, these folks run for a gold medal. But watch, all of that's going to pass away. They actually, they actually give their lives in such a substantial way for something that isn't going to last. But Peter and the apostles come along and they say, wait, there is a goal out there. And there's a, a way to discipline your life so that the prize that's out for, before you is an eternal prize. It is eternal life. If you run this race of faith in such a way as to win, you inherit an eternal prize that brings glory and honor to God forever. And so keep your mind focused on that. I saw this poster one time. I want to put it on the screen for you. It says, the pain of regret is always greater than the pain of discipline. Let that soak in just a minute. And let me tell you something that's true. Every single one of us in this room, including me, we know that that statement is true. We know it's true. Because every single one of us have been in a moment in our lives when we say, look, I know the right thing to do, and we didn't do it. Or we said, we know the wrong thing to avoid. We didn't avoid it. The, the pain of regret is always greater than the pain of discipline. Now, here's, here's the reality. Now, here's what we have to come to terms with. We might like it easy and safe and nice and comfortable all the time, but here's, here's the truth. Here's the reality. Sorry you had to come to church for this. Life is about pain. We're going to be in pain one way or the other. You either choose the pain of regret or you choose the pain of discipline. Either way, there's pain. Let me summarize life. Life is painful, then we die. And here's the, here's the benediction. I mean, that's the end of it. That's, I mean, that's the summary. Life is hard. It's pain. Life is pain. Then we die. There you go. There's your sign. The, it, that's, that's life. That's the way it is, right? So you have to pick your pain. Pick your pain. And what we're learning is that the pain of regret is more poignant, more difficult, more painful than the pain of discipline. And if you want to win the race, you've got to discipline yourself. This is what we learn from athletics. And this is the Word of God. So we, we, we learn we need discipline. Now, how do we get discipline? There's only one way we get discipline. Discipline that lasts. And that's from the power of God. If you say to yourself, well, I'm just going to discipline myself. And my willpower will carry me all the way to the, to the line. Hmm. Behavioral science will tell you that, that, that if, you, if you set some kind of ambitious discipline goal out in front of you, you can maintain it, some resolution like a New Year's resolution. You can maintain that for about 90 days. It means you've got about 60 days left from your New Year's resolution. So, you know, good luck with that. That's why New Year's resolutions fail so quickly, because we just can't do it. We can't work it up. We can't have enough willpower for it. So we get power from God. That's the source of our grace and our power. And the, re and the way that we get God's power in our lives, watch this, is the third point under athlete, which is 
we, we must stay focused on the reward. Focused on the reward. That's it. I remember as a young person, as an athlete, I remember what motivated me. I, I, I can tell you what it was. I was motivated by the notion that I have an opponent, I have an adversary, I have a, I have a nemesis out there, and I know that they're practicing. And so I would work out and train and practice. The reason I would do that is because I knew my opponent, you know, that, that, that adversary that I wanted to defeat, that every year, you know, we, we were kind of the best available, and so we would compete and we would bang heads. And I wanted to win. I wanted to win against that opponent. And then I imagined championships that could result with, for my teams if, if everybody disciplined them, their lives and, and, and gave it their best shot. And that's what got me up. That's what kept me going. That's what me, got me lifting weights and working out and running the extra miles and practicing, practicing the, the skill. That's, that's what an athlete does. And that's exactly the application that God gives to us. We've got to keep the goal. We've got to keep the prize. We've got to keep the reward out in front of us. And there's an eternal reward. It's a great thing. It's not temporary. Let me just remind you, everything you see, everything you see is going to pass away. Everything on this earth is going to be gone. The only thing that will be left is God's truth, His Word, and people. And the relationships we formed. That's it. Everything else is going to be gone. And there's this great reward in heaven that is in front of us. That if we'll run well, and we'll finish well, and we'll run to win, and we'll, and we'll discipline our lives, that God has in store for us something greater than we can even imagine. And we'll all do it together because we're going to last forever. Look at, look at uh, the life of Jesus. We know that this is what caused Jesus to be able to endure what he did. He saw the goal set before him. Look on the screen with me at Hebrews 12 too. It says, keep your eyes on Jesus who both began and finished this race we're in. Study how he did it because he never lost sight of where he was headed. That joyful finish with God in heaven. He could put up with anything along the way, the cross, shame, whatever. Now he's there in the place of honor, right alongside God. Here's what I believe. I believe that you can handle a lot of pain in your life. I believe that you can handle a lot of discipline in your life if you'll keep your eye on the prize. Look at what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 9, 26. He said, I run straight to the goal with purpose in every step. I fight to win. I'm not just shadow boxing. I'm not just playing around. And I just want to surmise, submit to you that that there are a lot of Christians who are too casual and a lot of Christians who are just playing around, just shadow boxing, you know, playing air guitar. Can you hear it? No, it's an air guitar. You can't hear it. You're not doing it. You're not actually playing a guitar. There's no, there's no sound. You're not actually doing it. And so we're just pretending. And so we have to, we have to keep our focus. Now that leads us to the third metaphor. It's the one of the farmer. And there's only one point I want to make. He says you can learn from the, from the farmer. Paul reminded Timothy, now you can learn from folks in agriculture. And those of us who live here in Indiana, East Central Indiana, Delaware County, we, we get this, right? I mean, it's all around us. We understand this. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 says this. Remember, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop. Any questions? Any questions? I mean, we got this, right? This is, this is farming 101. This is, this is elementary. Plant a few seeds, get a small crop. We got that. All right, we're, we're following him. 
but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. Any questions? Questions from this section? Anyone confused about that? Many seeds, big crop. We, we, we get this, right? It's, it's common sense. You must each make up your own mind as, as to how much you should give. Don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. God loves a cheerful giver. And then we find five times in the Bible that Jesus gives the same command. Five times. It's the only statement of Jesus that we find listed five separate times in the New Testament. Now, how many of you would agree that if you see something five times like that, it may be important? Here's the statement. He says this, I tell you, store up treasure for yourself in heaven. 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 Now, could I make a recommendation? <laughs> Store up treasure for yourself in heaven. Yeah. You say, well, how do I do that? This is how you do it. You do it by planting seeds, generous amounts of seeds, in a generous way. That's how you do it. You give your life away. You, you give of your time. You give to help others. You live an unselfish life. You live to serve. You're generous with your, with your money. You're generous with your time. You're generous with your reputation. You give of who you are and what you have in a meaningful way in the lives of others. That's how you store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Now let me just talk to you about REACH for just a moment. Next weekend, we're going to receive our REACH pledges for the next two years. And I know you've been praying and asking God about that. You should know that there's been this silent, private phase of the campaign for a couple of months now. And there are over 200 or so, a little more than that, of individuals and families who've already made a pledge to the campaign and have already started contributing to the campaign. And so that is underway. You should also know that I've asked our staff to make a pledge, our paid staff to make a pledge to the REACH campaign. And I'm happy to report to you that our paid staff at Union Chapel have pledged $118,000 to the REACH campaign over the next two years. You should know that that represents approximately 5% of their income. 5% of their income they've designated to REACH. And that's over and above their regular giving, their tithing, and their faith promise giving. And so you should know that the people who serve here on our staff are very generous and fully committed to the campaign. Many of you know, we've already announced, Beth and I have already made our pledge. We made the first pledge to the campaign before the end of the year, and we have pledged $20,000 to the campaign, which is above our tithe and above our faith promise. You should also know that the first check that was given to the campaign for these resources came from Beth and I, and we have, we have already written a check for $10,000. So we want you to know that, that we're, we're going in in a big way and that this is serious to us, and we want to provide leadership and, and model for you what sacrificial giving looks like. And so next week, I'm going to ask at the end of the services uh, to submit your pledge. If you've already turned in a pledge, I'm going to ask you to do it again just so everyone can feel part of the event. We'll celebrate that next week, and I'm looking forward to that. 
doesn't mean you're doubling on your pledge. <laughs> it just uh, means that we want you to be uh, part of it. Now, here's two final lessons. And, or two, two final promises. And it comes with this one lesson. And I want you to write this down. It's the last I fill in in your outline. And that is to reap a great harvest, I must plant generously in faith. If you want a big harvest, you have to plant generously. That's the way it works. Now, these two promises, these two verses. First, Luke 6.38. Jesus said, given it will be given back to you. You'll be given much. It'll be poured into your hands more than you can hold. You'll be given so much that it will spill into your lap. The way you give to others is the way God will give to you. And there it is. Now, here's the second promise. This is the guarantee from Jesus about anything you give up for his sake. And he said, Mark 10, 29 and 30, I guarantee you this. Anyone who gives up anything for my sake and the good news, whether a house or a family member or property, will get more than that back multiplied a hundredfold. And in the world to come, they will be given life forever. Now, do you see the guarantee? Now, some of you mathematicians, a hundredfold return, let me tell you what that means. That's a 10,000% interest. 10,000% interest. How many of you have a stockbroker who's promised you, guaranteed you 10,000% interest? <laughs> I'll answer the question. No one has a stockbroker who promises that. But Jesus and his dad promised that. Jesus said, I guarantee you that no one who gives up something for my sake will go without reward. And Jesus and his father have been making this guarantee for 2,000 years. And let me just clear you up on something. They don't owe anybody anything. They're completely up to, up to speed. Let me challenge you with this thought will be done. If you trust Jesus Christ for your eternal salvation, watch it now, your belief in Jesus, you're hanging your hat, your hope, on the fact that your faith in Christ has secured for you eternal salvation. If you believe that, that means that you trust the promises of God. John 3.16 God so loved the world, He gave His Son. Whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. You believe that. And you're going all in with that. I'm going all in. I'm hanging on to that. That's, that's my hope for eternal life. You, you trust that promise. Now over here in Mark chapter 10, it says, I guarantee you that no matter what you give up, God is going to bless you in return. A hundredfold. And the, it's an interesting reality in my world. This is, this is from my, my perspective. See, Beth and I have been practicing this promise for almost as long as we've been practicing the promise in John 3.16. We were very young Christians when we learned about Mark 10 and about Luke 6.38, about giving, it'll be given unto you. And here's what we did. Now, this may sound crazy to you, but we believed John 3.16. And we placed our hope in Jesus Christ for our eternal salvation. And then we saw this other promise in another place in the Bible, Luke 6, 38, and Mark 10, and other places like that that says, if you'll give, God will bless you. And if you give, you can't outgive God. In fact, you commit anything. You commit your money, a house, some, you commit that to God. Listen, God is going to bless you and bless you big time for that. He, he'll not be in debt to you or anyone else. And so here's something crazy that we did. We actually believe that promise too. We believe John 3.16 and that promise. We believe these other promises as well. You know? And so we not only practice, 
we all not only practice having hope for our eternal salvation, but we practice by giving our lives away and our stuff away to make a difference in the lives of others. And here's what I can tell you, just from personal experience, a little empirical evidence for you. One of them is, is true, and the other one's just as true. God's just as good on promise B as he is in promise A. In fact, it's, it's, so, it's so clearly obvious, and it's, and it's been without fail now for 45 years of following Jesus, that it's puzzling to me, it's confusing to me, it's, it's astonishing to me that folks can trust God for their eternal salvation but can't trust him with 50 bucks. <laughs> doesn't it sound funny? Doesn't that sound, doesn't that sound foolish when you hear it that way? <laughs> Isn't that funny? That's, just, that's, almost like, <laughs> that's almost like crazy. You trust him for your eternal life and you won't trust him with $100. <laughs> what are you thinking? I'm so, yeah, this is really funny. So I hope you'll sort that out. And if, if you need an eyewitness, I'm one. I can attest that God is faithful. Can I get another witness? God is faithful. And you can trust him. So whatever God asks you to do, you obey him and run the race well. Now let's pray about these things. Would you bow your heads with me? Dear God, we have to admit uh, that we've not always used our time and energy and money on things that are going to last. But Lord, we just want to make whatever corrections are necessary today. We want to run the race to win. We want to win the prize and reap the harvest. We want to please you, Lord. We recognize you. We're good so we want to be good soldiers. You're our commanding officer. And if that means sacrificing our comfort or eliminating distractions and even being aware of what we're willing to die for, so be it, because we intend to win. And we want the rest of our lives to be the best of our lives. And God, we confess today we know we can't change on our own. We don't have enough power. So we need your power to discipline ourselves to be our best, to stay focused on the reward. So help us to plant generously so we can harvest abundantly in the next life. Help us not to be short thinking. Help us not to think of only here and now, which isn't going to last, but to live our lives the way you intended in the light of eternity. Now, friends, while we're praying right now, and if you're in the room today and you've never invited Jesus Christ into your life, I want to pray a prayer out loud in just, just a moment. And you pray it in your heart. And as you do, God will hear you. Here's the prayer. Jesus Christ, come into my life and save me right now. I want to know you. I want to trust you. I want to learn to love you. I give you myself completely. And I ask you to use me for your purposes. I want to run the race and win the prize. In your name I pray. And everyone said out loud, amen. Would you stand with us now as we sing?